Good morning, church. In a few minutes, we're going to read from John chapter 6. If you brought a Bible and you want to open it to John chapter 6. Now, most of you probably know I grew up in church, right? Many of you did as well, but a whole lot of you tell me that Grace Community Church is your first real church experience, and that's fantastic because almost 30 years ago when we began Grace, we wanted to reach out to people who typically wouldn't go to church. I've been trying for 30 years to figure out a way to get the guy who'd rather go buy his 24-pack on Sunday morning and then watch the race to come to church. That's what we've been about, showing people a better way of life in Christ. Now, since I grew up in church, I'm familiar with a lot of the church ritual, a lot of the things that are done only in church that might seem strange to someone who's brand new to church. Uh, We call those things ritual, tradition, and liturgy. Uh, If you go to a highly formalized church, there's going to be a lot of ritual Uh, If you're from a Catholic background or an Episcopalian background, there's a lot of ritual associated. Tradition, of course, is, well, that's the way we've always done it at this church, and we do it the same way every time. And then, of course, liturgy, that's sort of like the things associated with that style of worship. But listen, if you've never been to church and you walk in for the first time, there are things that happen in a church that you may not understand. When I grew up in church, we sang hymns only. There was an organist, and the lady was about 140 who played it, and we had a piano on the other side, and that's all we used. There was a choir, of course, in the back, and my favorite hymn was All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. If you grew up in church, you're probably familiar with that song, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. Then it says, Let Angels Prostrate Fall. Now, if you're unfamiliar with church, you're thinking, Angels Prostrate Fall. I think my dad had his removed. (laughs) In 2008, uh, Amy and I had the privilege and opportunity to go to Paris. And while we were in Paris, we attended a mass at the historic Notre Dame Cathedral. And because I'm not familiar and up to speed with Catholicism and their ritual tradition and liturgy, I didn't understand what all the hats meant, and I didn't understand the candles, and and I didn't understand the banners. It's all about the liturgy, the the ritual of a certain way of worshiping. Uh, The church you grew up in may have had their own church kind of dialogue, where everybody was brother so-and-so, and and sister so-and-so, and and elder so-and-so, deacon so-and-so. If you went to a a Catholic church, then it was father so-and-so. At Grace Community Church, we have intentionally downplayed the liturgy, the ritual, the tradition, because we want the message of this book And we want the ministry of Jesus Christ, his person and work, we want that to take center stage. We don't want to distract you by anything other than those two things. So here's what we're doing. We're making our way through some of the major ideas and practices of the faith walk. The series is called Core 101. I've been told that if you have a strong core, you are a strong person. Uh, My core is not nearly as strong as it once was. I used to consider myself strong but not as much anymore as I've gotten older. The core principles of the faith walk, the building blocks, are going to make you strong in your faith walk and deepen your relationship with God. Week one, we talked about world religions. It is improper, it is grossly inaccurate to assume or say that all world religions are basically the same, because they're not. You can take the three major monotheistic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, 
And even just those three have major conflicting doctrines, teachings from those three, only those three, that are in direct contradiction of one another. When we got together the second week, we talked about authentic faith. The Bible teaches that it's not mere belief that takes us to God. It is belief that then gets materialized into authentic faith. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said, if your faith is mere belief, congratulations. Even the demons believe in God. The question is, how active is your faith? The journey begins with belief, mentally agreeing with God that Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be, but that faith has to go deep enough to affect our actions and our behavior. Week three, Tyler did a great job with worship. Worship is our response to God. Worship is so much more than singing. It's certainly not simply a feeling. Worship is our focused response and intentional response on God. Today, we're going to talk about discipleship. What is a disciple? What does discipleship mean? We're going to examine the effects of authentic faith and how they act in a person's life who calls themselves a disciple. Now, I want to introduce you. I'm not introducing you to anything because you're all familiar with this term. We're going to begin here. The term is Christian. Everybody in the room right now assumes they know exactly what that term means. But here's what's interesting about how that term has changed in the last six to seven decades. You could put 10 people in a circle and ask them to define that word, and you might get five or six or seven different answers. To some, that word means simply not Catholic. If you're Christian, you're not Catholic. You're Protestant. Okay? To others, especially in the media, that means a voting block. There's a certain group of people in America who vote a certain way. The conservatives are counting on the Christian vote. To others, that word is connected to an event. It's something you did when you were eight. I was baptized, therefore I am a Christian. Or I was confirmed in the church, therefore I call myself a Christian. It could be related to the sinner's prayer. I asked Jesus into my heart, therefore I am that. To some, however, unfortunately, that word means bigotry. It means arguments and dissension. It means narrow-mindedness. It means being homophobic. I'm not sure if I want to be Christian, called Christian in today's climate. So many people who identify themselves the same way can be so hateful and divided toward one another. Do you know what that word actually means according to the Bible? That word actually means little Christ. Little Christ. And scholars debate whether or not it was actually a positive or a negative term. Hey, look at the little Christs. Who do they think they are? The word Christian means little Christ. Do you know that word is only used three times in your Bible? Only three times. You say, wait a minute. I thought it would be all throughout the pages of the New Testament. It's not. The first one comes in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Look at the little Christs. Who do they think they are? Acts chapter 26, verse 28. Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Those are the only three times that that word appears. You see, those in the New Testament who followed Jesus Christ didn't call themselves Christians. That was a label that was put on them by outsiders. People who truly followed Jesus Christ in the first century church had another name for themselves, this word, disciple. 
Now, disciple is a confusing word as well. Because when I use the word disciple, you're probably thinking of the original 12. But many, many followers of Jesus Christ beyond Matthew and Mark and and Luke and John, beyond Thomas, beyond Peter, many people who followed Jesus Christ called themselves disciples. People like Mary and Martha, the brother of Lazarus, they were disciples of Jesus Christ. That's why they were so upset when Jesus tarried three days before coming to the rescue of their dead brother Lazarus. People in the New Testament like Joseph of Arimathea, Matthew chapter 27, I think it is. He started out a Pharisee, but became a disciple. Nicodemus, John chapter 3, started out a Pharisee, but became a disciple. What does disciple mean? There's a lot of confusion here. A lot of people assume in the church that if you believe in Jesus, well, that makes you a Christian right there. But now if that belief is crazy strong, and you do crazy stuff, you're like a zealot or a fanatic, well, now you're a disciple. If you're an outcast, if you don't fit in with anybody, and you claim to follow Jesus, well, we'll call you a disciple. That's not at all the way it's portrayed in the New Testament. The the answer to the question, what is a disciple, is pretty simple. It's a follower of Jesus Christ. That's why I use the term Christ follower in this church. I don't ask people if they're Christian. I ask them, do you follow Jesus? Are you a Christ follower? Again, Peter, James, John, Thomas, others, they all had one thing in common. Even though they came from very differing backgrounds, they all had one important thing in common. They all surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ and were willing to follow him. They demonstrated that their faith was indeed authentic. It wasn't simple belief. They demonstrated the authenticity of their faith, many of them by leaving their families to follow Jesus, by walking away from their careers, by turning down their latest opportunity in order to follow Jesus Christ. See, that's what a disciple does. Because a disciple wants to follow Jesus. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is a student. A disciple sees value in following Jesus. And not everybody sees value in following Jesus. Remember two weeks ago, we examined the rich young ruler of Luke chapter 18? He was curious about Jesus. He considered himself, quote, a good person. He may, in our climate, call himself a Christian. But when the rubber met the road, he saw no value in following Jesus. That's why he went away sad. It's tough to surrender. You realize self-sovereignty is man's greatest idol. It is tough to give up my own sense of self-sovereignty. And by the way, I can call myself a Christian because I got baptized when I was 10 and still remain self-sovereign. That's why at this church, we don't use the term Christian. Not because I'm opposed to it. Not because I'm against it. I want to know if people are determined enough, if their faith is authentic enough for them to intentionally follow Jesus Christ because that's where, it, where it's at. Remember what James said. Authentic, living, saving faith is faith that follows Jesus. James was the half-brother of Jesus. Incidentally, he didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah until after the resurrection. He grew up in the same household with Jesus. Son of God, pfft, son of God, my eye. But after the resurrection, James put the pieces together. And James is the one who said, people who have found the way, the true way, they walk in it. It's real. It's authentic. You see, discipleship is not built upon behavior. 
That would be called legalism. The moment I say following Jesus looks like this and this and this and this and this, and you better do all those things or you're not a real follower, that's the moment I become legalistic. That's why the Bible speaks in broad generalities, light versus darkness. The moment I begin to define the light in your life, oh, well, that means you got to pray like this. And that means you have to have experienced that. That means you need to worship this certain kind of way. That's when I become a legalist. Discipleship is not about legalism. Sometimes Christianity means that you behave appropriately, and that's all it means. Back in the old days, you know, parents would look at someone and say, he's a fine Christian young man. Maybe your dad or granddad would use that terminology. She's a fine Christian young lady. Well, all that means is that they behave properly. That means that they're socially acceptable. But discipleship goes beyond that. Discipleship is built upon faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Here's the gospel according to Paul. Paul the apostle, 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Here it comes. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel. That's why I'm here. That's why I embrace this divinely inspired book. But follow me, anyone can say they believe that and call themselves Christian. The difference is a disciple not only believes it, a disciple acts on it. A disciple responds to it because a disciple has to. Discipleship has nothing to do with being a fanatic or some sort of zealot. It simply means your faith in Jesus Christ is authentic. You follow the leader in your life intentionally. Now, not everyone who bears the name leader is worth following. We've all had people in positions of authority above us. They had the seniority. They had the time served. They had the right colored shirt or they had the right badge. Maybe they had their name on their door, but they didn't inspire anyone to follow them. I've had leaders in my life that held the position of leader, but they didn't inspire me or anyone to want to truly follow them. That's because some people make it difficult to follow them. They say and they do things that simply aren't reasonable. Adolf Hitler, history's tyrant, history's dictator, history's mad madman. He had plenty of followers because he was the leader. But his inner circle feared for their lives. They feared for the lives of their family. That's why they supported that dictator. A lot of people are hopeless. They have no other options, so they follow a leader. How else would someone like David Koresh or Jim Jones, Charles Manson, how, would, how else would they get anyone to follow them? You find a person who's destitute, a person who has no other options, a person who maybe is intellectually weak-minded and can't see through the fallacy of your arguments, maybe they'll follow you. As I said earlier, all of us on a much, much smaller scale know the experience of following someone who's our leader, but they do nothing to inspire us to follow. I mean, haven't we all gone to a dinner party and left that group of people, and you get in the car and you turn to your wife and you say, man, I don't know how or why in the world that woman married that man. I don't know how, I don't know how in the world they live together. 
Maybe, men, the reason your wife doesn't want to support, doesn't want to encourage, doesn't want to honor, doesn't want to biblically submit, doesn't want to follow your leadership is because you're that kind of leader. Well, guess what? Believe it or not, Jesus wasn't easy to follow in the first century. Believe it or not, Jesus said some things that made his disciples cringe. Believe it or not, Jesus did some things that had people squirming in their seats. Throughout the brief ministry of Jesus, it was barely two years, two and a half years. His first year, he was kind of obscure. No one really knew about him. But then he got real popular when he was about 31, 32. And then there was that last year when he was being chased by the Pharisees, eventually arrested, crucified. During Jesus' brief ministry, many of his followers turned back. I mean, everybody would come for the show. Everybody would come to see the miracle, but as Jesus refined and sharpened his words, as he defined his terms, many people turned back. So much so that in the passage we're about to read, John chapter 6, somewhere around verse 67, Jesus turns to his inner 12 and says, are you going to leave me too? Are you going to walk away from me too? Have I made you that uncomfortable? Now remember, Not all of the disciples understood the method, the ministry, the whole goal of Jesus. They they didn't put the pieces together until well after the resurrection. In fact, one of his closest followers, Judas, betrayed him. Obviously, he didn't understand. What happened on the night that Jesus was arrested in the garden? What did the, the, the disciples do? They scattered. They ran. They hid. They trembled in fear because their leader had put their lives at jeopardy. Their leader had made them grossly uncomfortable. Jesus was difficult to follow. See, some have the mistaken notion that it's easy to be a disciple. It's easy to follow Jesus. I'm here to tell you it's not. Let me tell you what it is easy to do. It's easy to simply agree with God about Jesus. Yeah, I believe in God. I'll go along with Jesus. Yeah, I'll go along with what Paul said. Jesus died for our sins. He rose again on the third day. I'll go along with that. I'll come to church periodically so long as I don't have something better to do. But the idea of actually squirming in my seat because of something my leader believes or says is something most of us aren't comfortable with. You see, according to Jesus' own words... In Matthew chapter 7, he made it clear it's going to be difficult to follow him. It's going to be difficult to be a disciple. Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Look, we don't even have to go very far from our text today. If we turned one page back to John chapter 5, if we had time to read the entire chapter, I could point out a handful of things that Jesus said that would have made me uncomfortable as one of his followers. Let me make a list. John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus said in public, not privately, in public, I am equal with God. Do you know the only time in the New Testament that Jesus described God the Father in a generic sort of way was when he was teaching us to pray, the model prayer. Some people call it the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're going to talk about that two weeks from now, prayer. But that's the only time. You see, Jesus didn't refer to God the Father generically. He referred to him specifically. Jesus didn't say our Father, the Father, the Father, whatever. He always said my Father, my Father in heaven, my Father. What was he doing? He was making himself equal with God, coexistent, co-eternal. Jesus said some pretty incredible things. That's just one of them. In verse 
22 and 23, or excuse me, 21, he said, I'm the giver of life. I am the giver of life. Jesus says, it's not just God the Father who determines who lives and who dies. I am the giver of life. I have power, the same power that God has over life and death. And there were a lot of prophets who claimed to be healers. There are a lot of prophets today who claim to be healers. But only one raised the dead, John chapter 11, and a man by the name of Lazarus. Jesus said in verse 22, I'm the final judge. I am the final judge of humanity. Many people assume God the Father will judge humanity. Not so. Jesus will judge humanity. And it's beautifully ironic because our judge someday will be one who was judged himself. He was sentenced and then he was executed. Jesus said, I will raise the dead. Excuse me. He said, I determine man's destiny in verse 24. Verse 24 reads, whoever hears my word and believes the one who sent me That's the one who crosses over from death to life. Jesus said in verse 25, I will raise the dead. Very truly, Jesus said, a time is coming when all who are in the grave are going to hear my voice and are going to come out. Man, Now, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're sitting right there behind him and he says something like that, how do you feel? You got to be thinking, oh man, do we have to go so hardcore right out of the gate? Can't you warm them up to it just a little bit? Can't you soften the message just a little bit? He said in verse 30, I am always doing the will of God. How pretentious is that? How much time would you want to spend with someone in the church who says to you, well, you know, I am always about my father's business. I'm always doing the will of God. I do nothing that is outside the purview of what the father wants for me. That'd be a person I'd probably try to avoid, right? But Jesus said it and meant it. The claims of Jesus were radical. That's why at this church we use the term Christ follower because they demand a radical commitment, an equally radical decision. We've talked about it on many occasions. It comes from Mark chapter 8, self-denial and cross-bearing. That's what it takes to follow Jesus Christ, and that's not easy for any of us. Now, Just as there is physical food that can curb physical hunger, in John chapter 6, Jesus is going to talk about spiritual food that can nourish us spiritually. In John chapter 6 and verse 54, you're not going to believe what Jesus had to say. He said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I mean, I hear that and I immediately think of Count Chocula. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. I mean, that's just weird, no matter how you say it, right? What kind of leader stands before his followers, stands before people he's hoping will become his followers and says something like that? Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. John chapter 6 is commonly referred to as the bread of life discourse in the Bible. John chapter 6 contains one of the seven I am statements that Jesus made about himself. It's John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. At the beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 people. Remember that story? With a little boy's lunch, some fish and some loaves, Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people. The crowds would come for these miracles, especially when they got dinner with the show, right? 
So the crowd is swelling. Jesus realizes, according to the text, that he's surrounded by Pharisees. And the Pharisees are out to arrest him. So he slips away under the cover of darkness. He gets a good night's sleep in privacy with his disciples. The next morning, the crowd realizes he's gone. They're hungry again. Aren't you hungry first thing in the morning? I am. They search for Jesus because they want to be fed again. It's in this context that he made that statement. It's in this context that he says, I am the bread of life. Jesus wants to fill their life not with momentary bread that only lasts for a little while and then you're hungry again. Jesus wants to fill their life with spiritual nourishment. Verse 26 of John chapter 5, it begins, you are looking for me, he's talking to the crowd, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils. Work instead for food that endures to eternal life. Now, The crowd is skeptical about statements like this. What do you mean, eat your flesh, drink your blood? I'm just here for another bread and fish meal. It worked yesterday. Why can't we do it again? You're the miracle worker, and I am curious about what you have to say, but let's face it, I'm hungry. So the crowd asked Jesus for a sign. Why don't you give us a sign, they said, like Moses did the children of Israel in the Old Testament. God delivered manna from heaven to nourish, to sustain the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness in search of the promised land. It comes from Exodus chapter 16. You can read about that yourself. Every morning they woke up, they walked outside their tent, and they were surrounded by bread. Miraculously, God sent bread down from heaven, and it sustained them at least temporarily. Jesus is about to draw the parallel. Unlike the manna given your forefathers that was here for a moment and then it disappeared, I am the one, I'm the bread of life. Anybody who comes to me will never go hungry. They'll never be thirsty. That's John 6, 35. Let me read it to you. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You know what the crowd did? They grumbled. Oh, that's not what we wanted to hear. And many of them walked away. Now, Pick up the story with me in verse 48 of John chapter 6. I am the bread of life, he says it again, one of the seven I am statements. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. So there's something different about Jesus being the bread of life and the bread that was given the followers or the uh, Israelites in the Old Testament. He's about to make that clear. Verse 50. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, again, drawing on that parallel, which anyone may eat and not die. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? That just doesn't make any sense. Obviously, this is a metaphor. Jesus was no more bread than he was a door or a lighthouse or a shepherd or a lion or a lamb. These are metaphors that Jesus uses to help people understand his mission and his work. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Verse 54, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. 
and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Now, don't misunderstand. That has nothing to do with what we're about to participate in, communion. These are merely symbolic of our belief that Christ is our spiritual nourishment. We eat the bread and we drink the cup because we want to associate ourselves with the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, Last verse, verse 56. Whoever eats my flesh, drinks my blood, remains in me, and I in them. Famous 20th century theologian named William Barclay. He was a Scottish... uh, author and teacher. He died in 1978. He writes concerning this passage, follow me. Think of it this way. Here in a bookcase is a book which a man has never read. It may be the glory and the wonder of the tragedies of Shakespeare, but so long as it remains unread on the bookshelf, it is external to him. But one day he takes it down and he reads it. Oh, he's thrilled, he's fascinated, he's moved. The story sticks with him. The great lines remain in his memory. Now, whenever he wants to, he can take that wonder outside from inside himself and remember it and think about it and feed his heart upon it, his mind upon it. Once that book was outside him, now it is inside him and he can feed upon it. That's what Jesus is saying in John chapter 6. Jesus is saying that unless you consume my death for your sins as spiritual nourishment, then you have no part in me. You see, that's the difference between a true disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, a learner, a student, and someone who simply calls themselves Christian. That's why I say discipleship is not easy, it's difficult. Let me leave you with three questions. Question number one, why am I searching? Why am I searching and for what or for whom am I searching? The crowd in John 6, they searched for Jesus simply because they were hungry again. He had filled them up before. Maybe he could do it again. Jesus had the ability to capture the imagination when he spoke, especially when he accompanied his teaching with a miracle. Follow me. Today there are many, many people All around us, we work with them. They live in our neighborhood. They're our brother-in-law, our sister-in-law, our father-in-law. They're searching. They're searching for something. What they really want is like a rabbit's foot Jesus. That's what they want. Or a a scratch-off Christ. That's what they want. You see, they've gotten themselves in a bind. They're They're in a tough spot. They don't appreciate or enjoy their circumstances. So they come to church, and they're hoping that a prayer or something in that book, or, or a friendship with somebody in the church, or something a minister says. They're, they're hoping that's going to give them what they need to sort of better their life. Jesus makes it very clear. The search isn't about a better circumstance. The search is about spiritual nourishment. Question number two, who answers the big questions in your life? Who answers the big questions in your life? The Word of God and the person work of Jesus Christ have answered the big questions, why am I here? What is life all about? What's my purpose for me personally since I was in college? You see, later in this same chapter, verse 67, when Jesus turns to his disciples, his closest followers, and he says, all right, the big part of that crowd left. Are you going to leave me too? You know how Peter responded? Peter said, where would we go? 
Where would we go? What would we do? You have the words of eternal life. Who answers the big questions in your life? Oh, our libraries and the internet is loaded with subjective guesses as to answering the big questions in life. But there's always something missing, isn't there? There's always something that leaves you less than satisfied. See? And many in our culture are content ignoring that emptiness. Just ignore it. It'll go away. They keep pouring themselves into the next new thing, the next big thing. That's why we work so hard, to earn so much money, to buy more stuff, to acquire more. Jesus is real. His love for you is eternal. It's unconditional. He can make sense of where you came from. He can make sense of why you're here and what you do next. Here's the third question. Question number three, have I consumed Christ and has he consumed me? Now, that may sound pretty radical. That may sound a little weird to some of us. But what we're talking about is self-denial. We're talking about cross-bearing. You see, only you know whether or not you're a true disciple. I can't really tell. And besides, Jesus told me not to judge. Only you know. In our culture, there are plenty of people willing to call themselves Christian, but few who bear the authentic faith, who demonstrate the response to God, who can call themselves disciples. A disciple of Jesus is far from perfect. A disciple of Jesus will struggle with sin. But a disciple of Jesus' intention is to follow his Lord. If they fall, they get back up and they try again. A disciple has consumed Jesus as his spiritual nourishment. The question is, have you? A disciple has consumed Jesus Christ as the source of spiritual nourishment. He's their answer. He's their way. That's why we follow him. Now, here's how we're going to do this. In a moment, we're going to sing a song. And while we sing the song in preparation for receiving the bread and the cup, we're going to start on the back rows, all the back rows. Come down these center aisles, please, one in a row at a time. Take what you need, exit, and go back to your seat along the walls, if you will be, and that'll keep things from getting congested. And when we get to the very front and everybody's taken, once you get to your seat, go ahead and sit down. Just have a seat. Be comfortable. Sing with us. And after we've all taken, I'll lead us, and we'll take together. Let's pray first. Father, we do this to remember your broken body, your shed blood. It is our spiritual source of nourishment as followers of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray it. Amen.